Another major development in the ongoing scandal surrounding inappropriate behaviour in the Canadian military, General Jonathan Vance, the former Chief of Defence Staff, has been charged with obstruction of justice. What is going on with the Green Party? They seem to be imploding just weeks or maybe months before a federal election. And we'll get the insight into the search for the loneliest whale in the world, a new documentary, The Great Story. So Canada's former Chief of Defence Staff, General Jonathan Vance, has now been charged with one count of obstruction of justice. It's all related to the probe by military police into the allegations of inappropriate behaviour that have been surrounding him since uh, back in February, I believe is when it first came to light. So let's get the details on exactly what has happened here and how it's now led to criminal charges being filed against Vance. We have Amanda Connolly joining us to discuss that. Uh, Good morning, Amanda. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So uh, just bring us up to speed here. This, These charges are directly in relation to him, allegedly, uh, interfering with the investigation into allegations of inappropriate conduct, correct? Yeah, so what we know right now is that there is one one charge, one count of obstruction of justice. This was laid by the military police, uh, and they're, they're alleging, again, none of this has been proven in court, but the allegation here by military police is that um, Vance attempted to obstruct the course of justice between um, February 1st and February 3rd uh, into the, the investigation that was being, uh, that was, un- that was being, becoming underway um, following the reports by Global News that he was facing allegations of inappropriate behavior. So uh, the military police certainly saying that uh, they, they have taken this step here because they believe, or they allege at least, that he had been attempting to interfere in that uh, and that they they had assumed, like, they, they took over the investigation basically on February 4th and it was during the course of the investigation, they say, that the obje- obstruction of justice is alleged to have occurred. So certainly a lot to unpack here. Vance is due in court on September 7th. 17th. Uh, this really is a, a significant development in a story that that has really rocked the Canadian military. Yeah, and Amanda, you mentioned Global News and how they've sort of brought this whole situation to light. In fact, um, one of the people who claims she was behind the allegations against Vance was on the West Block with Mercedes Stevenson, and she sort of documented how he interfered with the investigation, saying that he'd contacted her several times. Yes, yeah, so one of the women at the heart of the allegations here, Major Kelly Brennan, identified herself on the West Block, as you say there, on February 21st. She spoke about her experience uh, w- with Vance, and during that interview said that Vance had called her many times following the initial report about the allegations. In Brennan's words, she says that he, quote, told me to lie, um, end quote. Uh, certainly when we heard testimony from uh, Major Kelly Brennan at the parliamentary committee that was studying this as well, uh, she recounted some of those comments to that committee saying that um Effectively, there there had been uh, there had been questions raised about whether the, the the military police would be able to carry this out. Right. That uh, Vance had told her he was untouchable, that he owned the military police, and really we're we're kind of seeing a lot of concern here. Where we have seen a lot of concern about whether military police could handle a, a case like this. And we should point out that they have now taken it out of the military police's hands, put it into the civilian criminal system. Now that this criminal charge has been filed. 
Exactly. And I think that that the fact that this this is the course they have chosen to take this out of military police. And as you mentioned there, uh, give that charge over to the civilian courts to process. The Department of National Defense was saying that this is specifically because of limitations in the military justice system. And of course, we've heard over and over again those concerns from people who have come forward to committees to share their experiences, really questioning whether the military justice system was equipped and set up, um, really fundamentally structured to handle uh, investigations of, of this nature against senior individuals. And of course, Vance's is not the only senior, uh, senior current or former leader in the military who is facing allegations. And, and this really does kind of raise questions now about whether we will see this, this, uh, this path forward chosen in some of the other uh, investigations yeah. that remain underway. Yeah, and, and that's always been a constant discussion is, is can the military framework handle this sort of thing. Um, another story that you just published this morning uh, on Global News, kind of shocking, I guess the headline here, more than 2,000 reports of sexual misconduct within the Canadian military in the last five years. 2,000? Two th- more than 2,000, yes. So that this is updated data. The military has been tracking uh, reports of sexual misconduct submitted through the chain of command since 2018. Those go back to 2016, and this is really using their centralized system. Now, it doesn't capture everything. Experts have noted sure. that there is quite a lot that does not get included in this. Um, but from what, what has been actually reported through the military chain of command, yes, we're looking now at more than 2,000 reports of sexual misconduct included in that nearly a third of those reports are for incidents of alleged sexual assault as well. And we've seen those numbers increase um, over the last couple of years here as well, although it's it's difficult to say what is driving that increase, whether it's there, there have been some changes to the data that is collected, whether it's been um, this broader kind of conversation and, and cultural moment right. that the military is having. Um, so really a, a lot of, a lot of um, unknowns here, but certainly we can say that the, the number of reports that they have been receiving are, are going up. So, I mean, I guess the overall thing here with all of this, Amanda, is the fact we've talked about this for so long and it doesn't appear that any headway is being made at all. And that's where the focus and that's where a lot of the pressure now is, of course, is how do we get a handle on this situation? And what we hear all the time is it's the culture of the military. So what work is being done on that front? And obviously this will just add fuel to that fire. Yeah, it's a tricky question. You know, I think I think that really is at the the center of all of these conversations right now. Is is what um, what can be done and what needs to be prioritized uh, out of all of the possible options that that are being explored right now. There is an independent review underway. Yep. This was ordered back in April by the government. Uh, it's being led by former Supreme Court Justice uh, Louise Arbour. Uh, th- that's scheduled to take about a year, but we do know that she is expected to submit interim reports um, and really focusing specifically on the need to create an independent system for handling sexual misconduct reports in the military. This was a key recommendation back in 2015 when this kind of first landmark report on the problem came out uh, didn't happen. The Liberals did not take up that recommendation and implement that when they came into power in 2015 after that report was put out and they've gotten a lot of criticism for that that really is the central focus and um urging from experts right now is that you if you're going to fix the problem if you're going to really get serious about tackling this there has to be an independent way for these these allegations to be handled yeah exactly and we've talked about it so long there has to be some action enough talk but uh, thank you so much for the insight as always amanda we really appreciate your time thank you that's Amanda Connolly, a reporter with Global News, and uh, her and um, Mercedes Stevenson have just done 
remarkable work. In fact, the Global News reporting has been mentioned uh, in the criminal proceedings involving General Jonathan Vance. They have absolutely been championing this cause and uh, actually bringing about real change, which is the goal of any journalist. So kudos to them. So we're all under the assumption that we'll be headed to the polls in a federal election this fall, September, maybe October, somewhere around there anyway. And one of our federal parties is completely coming apart at the seams at the worst possible time. The Green Party is right now actually working to suspend the membership of their own leader. It's the latest step in a very strange and extremely bitter battle. So let's get some insight on what on earth is going on. David Aiken, the chief political correspondent for Global News, joins us now. Hi, David. How you doing? Hey, good, Shay. How you doing, man? Not bad. Not bad at all. Listen, I, I cannot keep track of this soap opera with the Green Party. Um, we're not at the stage where party executives... <laughs> it's crazy. So party execs, do I have this right, are actually moving to kick the leader out of the party and block her from running in the upcoming election? Is that how far we've gone? That is how far we've gone. Um, yes. So, so uh, you know, we've been reporting on this. I, I don't know what you call it. Um, controversy, attack. I'm not sure what it is. And, and this really, this Green Party, I don't know, Civil War, whatever you want to call it, really goes back to the leadership race to replace Elizabeth May. Right. Annamy Paul won that leadership race. Um, she is from downtown Toronto. And because it's radio, we don't have pictures. Let me tell you, she's a black woman, but she's also Jewish. And I remember speaking to her during the campaign and she was taking a ton of abuse from Green Party members, racist attacks because she's black, misogynist attacks because she's a woman, and anti-Semitic attacks because she's Jewish. And there are her defenders who say a lot of that has continued along. And recently, over the last you know couple of months, it boiled up because of... Uh, a very middle-of-the-road position, if you ask me, mm-hmm. that Anami Paul, who's Jewish, took on the most recent conflict between Hamas and Israel. Like everybody, she said, hey, put down your arms, um, you know, ceasefire, the violence has got to stop, uh, you know, condemned the terrorists for throwing uh, rockets at Israel, but also said to Israel, you're our friend, you know, you gotta, you got to show a little restraint, which is the position the government of Canada took. But to some in the Green Party who um, very much sort of pro-Palestinian, etc., that was too much. One of the MPs elected in 2019 is a Green. Your member, Janica Atwin, she was a Green yes. Party MP. She said, you know, Andy Paul, oh, that's a terrible position. Yeah, and, well... Sort of. She she said that we, you know, that the Palestinians are the victims and the and she used the word apartheid referring to Israel. That's the real no, no. And um, and long story short, um, she got attacked by one enemy, Paul Staffers, and she felt hard done by. So she left and went to the liberals. Okay. And that really upset a pile of greens in the green establishment. And they blamed enemy Paul and her staff. So now the Green Party Leadership Council, the unelected board of directors, they have, it's a weird, weird kind of party. The board of directors has perhaps more power of the party than the leader does. Anyhow, board of directors says this is terrible. You got to make this right or we're going to have a, a vote at the board of directors, a confidence vote. That's going to happen in a, in a few days. That was a couple of weeks ago. Then the exec, so Annamie Paul, one of her reactions was to say, I need some lawyers to tell these guys to cease and desist. And that, according to the Green Party Constitution, gave cover to the interim unelected executive director of the party to launch a review of Annamie Paul's 
um, membership in the party, because apparently members are not allowed to launch legal actions against the party. And if you do, you're, that's reasons for dismissal from the party. <laughs> so this is crazy. I mean, the long and short of it, even if you didn't follow all that, is that the Green Party is imploding. This is going to hurt fundraising, candidate recruitment. Forget it. You know, try and find some decent star candidates. Sure. And, you know, Shay, you know, I know this. Greens weren't going to win anything in Alberta, weren't going to win anything in Saskatchewan. But they do they do take away on the west coast they sap ndp support and on the east coast on the atlantic coast they sap liberal support so you know who's cheering about this green party thing are new democrats jugmeet singh and the democrats on the west and justin trudeau and the liberals on the east and you know i know everybody's looking at polls and think it's going to be a walk for justin trudeau i get news for you it is not going to be a walk for trudeau the trudeau liberals and that's that's not because Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party are strong by any means. It's because of Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. And it could have been because of the Greens on the East Coast. And so, you know, th- this does factor into the bigger picture. Even if the Greens had been able to peel off a few thousand liberal votes and a handful of writings, it could have prevented Trudeau from getting a majority. Right. Um, and that's why this is a big issue for folks in Alberta, Saskatchewan, even where there is not a strong green presence. Yeah, the, the ripple effect is, is widespread for sure. Okay, so as you said, uh, technically yeah. what we would call a leadership review coming up next week, is that when we may get some closure and some, yeah, I mean, they yeah. need certainty. They need something concrete here. They do. So, so here's how the rules work. So there's, so, so I, I mentioned the Green Party's board of directors. Uh, the board of directors has a whole bunch of vacancies right now, and they're in the, the party's in the midst of electing new directors. Uh, those elections conclude in 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 August. So this is a lame duck, what they call federal council, right? It's on its way out. They're all about to be removed, and nonetheless, um, they're going to have essentially a confidence vote. It's not a leadership review. It's really a confidence okay. vote just among those people on the board of directors. Now, here's the thing. To sustain a confidence vote, in other words, we have no confidence in view, that needs two-thirds of the votes at this federal council. Now, I'm looking, and the federal council, by the way, notorious for not talking to reporters. It doesn't matter us, any organization. They just don't, they don't want to talk. They don't want to be accountable. But I've been able to sort of suss out that I think Annamie Paul's looked at that federal council, and I think she's got, she's, she, she's got at least more than a third, probably half of the council on her side. So this confidence vote might not work. Okay. But even if it did, if they voted non-confidence in their leader this month, then there would be there's going to be an uh, a meeting of the all the entire membership. It'll be online, virtual, and at that point, uh, the membership will be asked to sustain a non-confidence vote of the board. That only takes half the membership. So, so there's still. But again, this is all happening. Well, what are other parties doing? Exactly. Well, they're busy preparing for a federal for sure. election. Exactly. And the meanwhile, the Greens are tearing themselves up about this. <laughs> when you talk about the membership, um, I, I put a, put aside all the problems that they're having. When you take a look at party leadership, it looks like this is a failure in an experiment here. It has not worked out clearly. Um, what does the membership feel about having her lead them into this election that we anticipate is only just months away? Does she still? have membership support well this is the difficult thing to gauge i mean usually when you you know as a reporter if i was trying to gauge you know does aaron o'toole still have support i'd be talking to caucus or you know eda presidents or uh members of the conservative board of directors and same thing with any other party but as i say the green party believe it or not um is is i would say notorious for its its 
its leadership in the party, they're worse than Stephen Harper's conservatives. And though who knows how the press and, <laughs> and the Harper conservatives got along, it wasn't good. It's worse, I think, with the Green Party. They, they're just not communicative. They have an, inter, as I say, an interim executive director, an interim president. Um, they've been through a couple of executive directors over the last couple of years, and there's been lawsuits about how people have left. And so we really have only been able to hear from people who you know, are on their way out right. and want to speak up. And they often have, you know, they may not be representative. So it's hard to say, but I guarantee you that this does not, I mean, just generally, when you get this kind of turmoil in sure. the party, you, you don't have the volunteers to go canvas for support, to give money. And again, candidate recruitment. Candidates are so important if you want to have success. You want a strong local candidate. Um, and they're just not going to step up. But, you know, they, the, the Green Party had this big breakthrough out in New Brunswick in the last election with this Janica Atwin. And she was a, you know, really positive candidate, you know, a young woman, an activist in the community, known in the community. And she really parlayed that into, uh, in, in that riding she won in Fredericton, New Brunswick. There was some really interesting vote splits between a liberal incumbent, um, the, the Conservative Party and the Greens. And that was the votes all sort of split across and she came up the middle. And I think the Green Party until this happened, they could have actually won in Prince Edward Island. They could have won maybe one, maybe two seats. In PEI, the Green Party is the official opposition. <laughs> so th there's a there's a nucleus of support in some regions of the country. And again, I, in a, if you if the Greens were going to win in PEI, it would be at the expense of Trudeau's Liberals. And I can tell you, in 2019, I was on the island campaigning with Trudeau, and I was speaking to Liberals there, and they knew that the Greens were a threat then, and they couldn't understand it. They said, "What? Why do the Greens hate us Liberals so much?" Well, because you guys bought a pipeline, right? I mean, right, sure. The liberals bought that Trans Mountain pipeline, which the Greens, uh, you know, the Greens use the Greens use that all the time against them. So does the NDP. So again, th that's you know, if you look at what's going to happen to the party membership, there are there are you know a couple of million people who would be inclined to vote Green in any general election. Um, but I can actually foresee a situation. It's got so bad that there will be no Green MPs in the House of Commons. Right now, there are just two. Elizabeth May, she's still there, uh, Saanich Gulf Islands, and Paul Manley, who's a Green MP from Nanaimo, B.C. And, uh, and I can see a situation where even Elizabeth May doesn't win. Now, she's personally very popular in her writing, and the alternative there is that probably conservative. She beat a conservative to get in um, a couple elections ago. Um, but the conservatives, they, they need to win somewhere. And if they're Vancouver Island, that would be a spot I'd be aiming for her seat. Um, and certainly the NDP are going to be gunning for um, the Nanaimo seat, which is one they held before the Greens did. So it's not looking good for the Greens in right now. They just, uh, no, they just have not got their act together. And, and yeah, it is a, it's an absolute mess. It's pure chaos. Hey, last one before I let you go. Um, with her infamous press conference sure. where uh, she came forward and talked about a lot of what was going on, she, she threw some shots at Justin Trudeau and saying he was, I don't know if she was intimating that he was orchestrating this somehow or something like that. Anything more on that front in terms of how Trudeau may have had a hand in this? Because that well, was the allegation. So that was, of course, in the whole context of the floor crossing right. that Janica Atwin came over to the Liberal Party, and um, and you know who knows what goes on in backrooms, but there was the insinuation there that they, you know, she was lured, pressured, yep. and and of course this didn't reflect well on Annamie Paul's leadership. I chalked that up to politics. She's trying to make the best of a really bad situation when you lose an MP, and so she's taking shots at uh, Justin Trudeau. But I mean, to be honest, I mean. She, if she didn't do this, I know others did. I mean, um, as Janica Atman was out the door becoming persona non grata now in the Green Party, many pointed out, uh, good luck, Janica. You know, 
look, look at how some strong independent women did in Justin Trudeau's caucus, like, oh, I don't know, uh, Selena Cesar Chavan, like Jody Wilson Raybould, like Jane Philpott. Um, you know, Trudeau has, this is his critics say, you know, Trudeau, uh, tends not to listen to strong independent women or or brushes them aside or they're forced to quit so that's politics and that's what anime right. paul was kind of getting at um you know i'm not su- so sure that's going to be so successful and um and janica atwin meanwhile remember i said she had this she was like over the top criticism of israel all of a sudden she she goes well, maybe my language is a little too harsh because he's in a liberal caucus sure, where yeah, yeah. Uh, there are some uh, there are some jewish members of that caucus that were not at all happy with her comments or her floor crossing and so she had to put some two okay david we're you're, you're breaking up a little bit towards the end but I, I love the insight and the analysis as always thank you for joining us appreciate it no problem. Okay, cheers, guys. Thanks. That's David Aiken, uh, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, trying to walk us through what's going on with the Green Party. Justin wants to talk about the Green Party. Let's get this call in quickly. Hi, Justin. What's on your mind? Hey, um, well, I know the Green Party doesn't seem to have a big influence in Alberta. No. But it definitely has a big influence on federal politics. So when I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago when Elizabeth May was about to hand over the reins to something else, she almost uh, threatened to resign the party because of the anti-Semitic views. Similar, I believe it was a resolution calling Israel an apartheid state because mm-hmm. of Palestine. And it seems like the anti-Semitism is somewhat rooted in there. I don't know why, but it, it, it seems like it's crickets in the media that we're talking about it. Like Right now, the Liberals and the Greens are fighting over an MP that called Israel an apartheid state. An apartheid state, like, yes. Yeah. Why Why do the liberals even want that in their party? Well, as David said, it sounds like she was sat down and talked to and uh, given a pretty stern message that you stop with that kind of talk if you're going to be part of the like, liberal party. Like, what did the conservatives do with uh, the one senator that said that uh, the residential schools were taken out of context? Like, to me, that kind of comment is almost similar where it's like, no, <laughs> it's not taken out of context. Like, we have values, but it seems like, like I, I don't get it. Like I hear what you're saying. These, yeah, I mean, the, the the rhetoric can get extreme, right? And and, well, and cause damage. I get it. I get the politicking, but why is no one calling out Justin Trudeau for taking taking a uh, a new Liberal MP that was in public saying pretty gruesome things about Israel, and then other MPs get booted out of there for less. I hear you. Okay, Justin, yeah. Uh, well, you just called him on it, and I appreciate you calling in. Uh, just some of the texts, and, and this, is, this is a good one, and it's kind of the way that I feel about this whole situation. This listener says, if the members inside your own party have a dislike for you, why are you forcing them to like you? Isn't it better just to leave and have somebody else come in? The turmoil is not going to stop until the person has left the building. The Green Party is dead. I don't even know why they exist. Well, I don't know if they're dead, but they're certainly grievously injured. There's no question about that. And, um, yeah, I agree with you when it comes down to it. And, and, you know, maybe all the other things need to be borne out. We need to have investigations. We need to find out more details about it. But it looks to me like at this point the party internally is coming apart, and it's all about the leadership. So when you're this close to an election at any time, at any time, uh, but especially when you're this close to an election, you can't um, 
have a situation where the the party is is dealing with things like this. It's an absolute disaster if you're trying to run into a federal election. So we'll see what goes on with the Greens. As we heard, uh, July 20th is the next step where they take that confidence vote in um, the leader and see if they wanted to stick around. There's a couple of really cool documentaries that are becoming available today, as a matter of fact. One of them is the new Anthony Bourdain documentary called Roadrunner. Some controversy surrounding that one. Uh, The other one is called The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52. Very cool story. It's documenting the quest to find out what may not only be the world's loneliest whale, but probably the world's most famous whale. If you've ever heard of a whale before you know, not one that's in captivity, a wild whale. It's probably whale 52 that you've heard of. Apparently he's a hybrid between a fin whale and a blue whale, which means uh, he's enormous. And for years now, he's been the topic of discussion and wonder. He's got a Twitter handle. He's been sculpted by artists, been a subject for playwrights. Poems and songs have been written about this guy. BTS, Sarah, that band that you like, the K-pop band? They wrote a song about Whale 52. Oh, no way. Did you know that? I didn't know yes, that. Yes, they did. teaching me about pop culture. Exactly. That's how important this whale is. Um, and now he's the subject of a new documentary. Um, where'd the guest go, Sarah? Didn't we have a guest? Oh, she's on Skype. Okay. Uh, yeah, so let's find out more about Whale 52 in this documentary that is now available streaming today. Anna Shirovich joins us now, who is an associate professor at the Texas A&M University at Galveston. Hello, Anna. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. This is a great story. Um, just give us the backstory. Introduce us to Whale 52 and how he came to be known as the loneliest whale in the world. Well, the the story started in the science realm sometime around mid-2000s when a scientific paper was published by a group of uh, scientists who worked for the Navy who have access to these underwater microphones, which are called hydrophones, Mm -hmm. that are found across the Pacific Ocean. And they can track sounds across a vast area. And so over uh, many years, they were able to track this distinct signal from a whale that was traveling up and down uh, across the eastern North Pacific. And the reason they could track this animal is because it sounded different from blue whales that are common in that area. It sounded different from fin whales that are common in that area. And it sounded some like some weird, um, unusual uh, modification of both of those songs that those two different species sang. And so they published the paper that uh, I guess since then, which doesn't happen often to, <laughs> to scientific papers, but it kind of got legs of its own and somehow breached the the consciousness of the public and and, and I think it has actually been the, the no misnomer of the loneliest whale I think is a little bit off because the, the idea was that because it sings at a different frequency that nobody else can hear it but that's not really true right because they, they can hear him yeah he, he sounds maybe he sounds a little bit different than other whales uh, so, you know, maybe he sounds like somebody from the southern U.S. coming through to Canada and then just has this weird accent that you can't quite make out. But Anna, um, it did get sort of romanticized with this whole pop culture springing up around the fact that he's wandering the ocean, calling for companionship, and nobody can absolutely. understand it. Yes. So there, I think there's something there probably that speaks as much about 
our society and culture than you know necessarily the whale itself. But certainly from, from science perspectives, there's additional interesting questions about it. So we don't know for a fact that this is a hybrid. That is, that is the current hypothesis right. that we're working off, um, which was something that with this documentary, we're trying to find this animal and see if that is in fact what it is. And I don't want to give away any Yeah, we don't want to spoil it here. We don't want to spoil it. No. Um, but, but part of the reason why that would be interesting to find out is that it would give us an idea of how whales come about producing sounds, for example, and understanding more about genetic versus learned behaviors that might be leading to, to these songs. And, you know, it could also tell us more. We, we could better understand if we knew what exactly this animal was, we could better understand um, whether it is lonely or whether it's just part of a, a group and, and hangs out. It just sounds a little bit weird. <laughs> now, the documentary sort of, um, well, it documents a team going out trying to find Whale 52, and you're part of that team. I'm, I'm always fascinated by this. Now, did he have tracking things, or are you basically, I mean, you want to talk about searching for a needle in a haystack, finding an ocean, <laughs> a, a whale in the ocean. How do you go about doing something like that? You know, sound is the best way to do that if okay. that whale is making sounds. Because, so a lot of these very large whales, the sounds they produce, they're very, very low uh, frequency. So we perceive it as very low pitch. And in fact, some of it might be below our hearing range. But because of that, they travel exquisitely well. They can travel 100 miles or so. And so by listening to it, we can have the best chance of finding that needle in the haystack. You certainly your chances of seeing it where you can only see a few miles around you are going to not quite cut it. Um, and the other advantage that we had is that we have had recordings across the Pacific for many years, mostly focused around Southern California where, where we did this um, recording. And over the years, we have gotten some sense of what time of the year and what place we might be more likely to encounter this whale. So that was, you know, the, you you help yourself with that yeah. needle in the haystack by going to place and time when you think there's a better chance that it might be there. And then the equipment that we used allowed us in real time to listen to the sounds in the ocean and actually get direction. When we, when we identified sounds that were interesting, we'd get a direction to that sound and then pursue it, basically go in that direction and see if we can find what it is that's producing it. Now, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that you found him, because you wouldn't have a documentary if you didn't. So so you did manage to locate him, right? Well, that would be a spoiler, so I'm not... (laughs) (laughs) I I think what we we found is that there's more mysteries out there in the ocean than than anybody thinks about regularly. And I think that is really an exciting and, and an important thing for all of us to be aware. There's still so much we don't know about the ocean. Um, and and it, it's fascinating that we are still learning about, as you said at the beginning, giant creatures yeah. that are bigger than anything that's ever lived on land. And yet we know so little about them that they keep surprising us. Hey, just tell us about the experience of working on this documentary. I mean, it's executive produced by Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, the producer of this film has made some absolute smash hit documentaries. Was it a very cool experience for you to be part of this team? I've, I've certainly had several experiences that were, you know, more Hollywoody than my usual <laughs> life. <laughs> But for the most part, we were we were out at sea um, with the filming crew, and I've spent a lot of time at sea, um, where 
the, the most unusual thing about this was that we had this film crew and you were microphoned all the time. So anytime we did or said anything, they would jump and be like, oh, what? You know, you, you had to be careful about what you were doing. You were saying it was, I guess, what being on reality TV would, must be like. Um, so that, that was definitely a, a different and unusual experience. But, you know, we did not get to rub shoulders with all of the. Right. They just um, threw some money at you. More or less, yes. <laughs> Anna, very cool. I-, I can't wait to watch the documentary. Thank you for joining us and giving us a little background into how it came together. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You bet. Thanks very much. Uh, that is Anna Sarovich, who is an associate professor at Texas A&M University in Galveston and was part of the team uh, that takes part in this documentary. And as I said, uh, it's, got some, it's got some star power attached to it. You won't see them in the documentary, but the people behind it... Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, one of the executive producers, and um, the filmmaker, the producer of this is Joshua Zeman, who produced The Killing Season and Sons of Sam, which were big smash hits in terms of the documentary film world recently. So, uh, as I said, that film, now out, called The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.